You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. Yes, you did it. I nailed it. I nailed it, finally. 107 episodes in. (laughs) (laughs) All right, perfect. So, um, Shane, what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about weighted vests, and we're not talking about weighted vests in the frame of I'm putting on a a heavy vest while I do workouts. I'm talking about a weighted vest that is used for a type of treatment. Yeah, specifically for a child who has some, almost always has some kind of diagnosis of a learning disability or some other um, developmental disability or intellectual disability of some kind. So that's what we're going to cover today. I'm really excited about this one because I'm really, I see this a lot working with individuals with special needs. Uh, I see weighted vest, weighted blankets, um, things like pressure. I think that I see that get, uh, you, you know, recommended for individuals with special needs a lot. And um, I really am excited to dig into this to kind of provide a little bit of insight on, on where this is coming from, why people recommend it and whether you should or should not use it. That'll be super helpful. I know that have you heard of this thing? Like, uh, they'll sell these things for adults that are these weighted blankets that are just yes. supposed to be like super comfortable and keep you still super warm and all that. Yeah. So, so the idea of a weighted vest is not unlike that of a weighted blanket, except that in a weighted vest, you're more or less forced to do it. And like I said, these are mostly individuals who have some kind of diagnosis that would generally prevent them from advocating for themselves with respect to this. There is some interesting research about them selecting weighted vests when given the choice under certain circumstances, but I think it'll be worth examining what those circumstances are when we get there. So some questions that we're planning to answer, to ask and answer in this episode are, what are weighted vests? Why do people put them on these children and individuals with disabilities? And what does the research show about the use of these uh, and how they're supposed to work and what they're supposed to do? And I think those are valid questions. As you know, as we go into this, I think those are questions that as, as somebody, if I were a parent of an individual with special needs, I'd want to ask these questions myself. And some other ones as well, such as where can I get them and how much do they cost and what's the harm, that sort of thing. It's what's just the point? Stuff to know. What's the point? Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's dig into the background a little bit. So what are they? So what are weighted vests, weighted blankets, or anything like that? So when we talk about this, and we and just so everybody has this frame of reference, we're talking about any item, and usually it's in the form of a blanket or a vest, um, but it's been altered to be heavier by sewing in uh, some additional weights, and uh, like they'll have pockets that are sewn for that purpose specifically to include uh, different elements or different materials that will help it be a, a more weighted material. So... So um, I want to say that some of the things that we've seen in those would be like sand or uh, like different types of weighted pellets or, you know, things like that. But mostly it's like it's a type of sand that they'll include in that. Right. Yeah, I believe that there are some sort of heavy metal plates, not like Black Sabbath plates, but (laughs) metal metals that are dense that they'll put in some of the pockets sometimes. Those ones might be a little bit dangerous just because if they fall, you know, that could hurt. Um, But I've, I've just seen it really described as there being weights sewn into it and not necessarily what those weights are. But I think that you're right that a lot of times it is a sand or sort of softer material that's relatively dense that can be put in there. I wonder if they fill them with water sometimes. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Or like a a weighted gel even. Yeah, like the kids like a walking water balloon. You (laughs) squeeze them, they'll pop (laughs) everywhere. Oh my gosh. That, I, 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 I bet there are. I mean, you know, if you think about it, like, isn't like a camel pack just kind of like a weighted vest? It's like a weighted backpack, except it's got some utility to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
That'd be funny if they had like 20 different straws coming out of their little pockets. <laughs> <laughs> There's, it's like, it's time like for a, a snack. Yeah, it's just a jacket full of Capri Suns. <laughs> <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be pretty humorous and just ridiculous too. So <laughs> so uh, Capri Sun, we're trademarking that, just so you know. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, so some people believe that weighted vests, the reason that they use them is that they believe that they can calm children, specifically children with autism or these other learning or intellectual disabilities, to help them manage some of the issues they might struggle with. And so specifically listed on some of the websites is they'll help them uh, manage their hyperactivity or help them with their sleepiness, hmm? which I don't really know what they're trying to add or maybe help wake you up. I'm I'm unclear what they're proposing there. Um, And another one that was proposed as well was this idea of them helping with poor motor skills, which also seems surprising. I'm not like they're weighted vests. So how? And I feel like any sort of additional weight would hinder motor movement. So it would not improve those motor skills. If you're, I just don't, I like from the, from the perspective that they're taking, I don't understand how it treats these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll go ahead and dig into this some more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so actually, um, some claim too, that, that weighted vests can help increase attentiveness and help with self-stimulatory behaviors. So things like hand flapping or, or, you know, stimming, like I've seen a lot of, uh, individuals that that I'll work with that'll flap their hands over face, over their faces in front of a light or, or something like that. Um, so, so there's some claims that these weighted vests can actually help with those types of behaviors. Right, and we'll get into more specifically what that stimming or self the stereotypic behaviors are. Um, but another one is that there is some mention that people who work in classrooms or in places where these weighted vests are often being used, they'll say anecdotally stuff like that they see when a child is wearing a weighted vest that those stereotypic behaviors um, will decrease and they'll see a corresponding increase in more appropriate behaviors in the classroom. And this really doesn't come from research. This really comes from people's sort of a testimonial of this, this works and it's good. And so we'll get into some of the research just to say that that's what has been reported from people who will just sort of look at it, which really does imply that sort of observer bias of, I expect this to work. I want this to work. Therefore, I'm more likely to notice changes that appear to me to be working. Yeah. And so, um, so we're going to, we're going to dig into that a little bit and kind of say, hmm, maybe anecdotal reports are not enough, right? Yeah. Let's go ahead and define this idea that we mentioned already of stereotypy or stereotypic behaviors. So sometimes what we'll see is that children with autism or other developmental disabilities will engage in what are described as stereotyped behavior patterns or often simply described as stereotypies. So this is typically some kind of repetitive repetitive behavior, uh, usually rhythmic, self-stimulatory, non-productive behavior. Some examples I, I mentioned before, like hand flapping or rocking or a couple different examples that I've seen. Um, I've seen individuals that will, uh, you know, move a toy very quickly in the same pattern back and forth. Um, they may have some vocal stereotypy where they'll make the same noise multiple times in a row and in very short bursts. I'm in a classroom right now and one of the individuals in the classroom, he makes this very high pitched sound and he goes really loud and then goes underneath his breath after he does it every few minutes. Mm -hmm. So that might be another example of like a vocal stereotypy that you might see. 
Yeah, I've seen some very common vocal stereotypes that are like, kick, 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 and they'll just make these really high-pitched, repetitive mm-hmm. noises that don't really mean anything. Um, they'll sometimes plug their ears while they'll do it. I've seen kids who will hold something off in the corner of their eye, and they'll like off in their peripheral vision, then look out of the corner of their eye and turn their head as far as they can until they like can just barely see it in their per- peripheral vision, mm-hmm. which which I always think is kind of interesting. Um, and then they're sometimes arranging things to make a very particular pattern, and then they'll break it down, and then rearrange it to make the same pattern, and then break it down, and then rearrange it to make the same pattern. And again, these are all hitting on those critical features that you mentioned, that they're repetitive, they're usually rhythmic, and they're usually non-productive. Oftentimes, these are just sort of, they do them because it produces some kind of self-stimulatory um, effect, where it's like, this feels good, or it looks good, or it feels cool, or it, it's... One thing that we have sort of mentioned on this show a little bit, but it's probably worth talking about more in depth at some point, is this idea that when we get in the habit of doing things, it kind of feels good to just follow through on that pattern that we're used to doing. And so one of the reasons that habitual patterns will maintain as well as they do is because they're part of that routine that we're so used to that it just sort of feels good to complete that routine. We have all the cues that are there, all the rewards that are usually there, or at least they're implied by the context. And so it just becomes... I guess I want to say self-fulfilling is not really the right word, but self-rewarding, I guess, that as we do those things, they continue. And that that is very much present in the, uh, a lot of these repetitive behaviors that part of what seems to be going on for many of these individuals, not not maybe all of them, but for many of them, is that idea that once they get used to this pattern, it feels good to just do that pattern. And another important point on this actually is that most people do some version of stereotypic behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So I personally, um, if you ever watch my hands when I'm in any, in any sort of situation, I, I typically am messing with the skin around my nails uh, to the point that I actually like make myself bleed. So um, you know that's probably a little bit too inf- too much information. It actually goes from stereo- <laughs> stereotypic to uh, self injurious. But that's just that's just I catch myself doing that. I do that like almost all day. It's repet- It's repetitive. It feels good. I can't help it. I think a way of describing this is a common term for this idea of stereotyped patterns in in sort of everyday people is mannerisms. So when people will sort of stroke their chin in a particular way, or they'll do sort of a smile and nod when they're talking to you in a particular way, or they'll move their hands as they talk, all of these would fall into this category of things that are, are once they become rhythmic, habitual, repetitive sort of the self-stimulatory non-productive behaviors, these are all sort of a form of stereotypy. One that I do that I'll, I'll admit to that I've mentioned before is for some reason, when I am walking along any tort type of path, I look for corners and I try and imagine a, a line protruding out from the corner at a 135 degree angle and step over that line. It's super weird and super <laughs> dumb. And I don't it's know why specific. I do it. It's very specific, but yeah, and I look for basically corners and everything. Any place where I can find a corner, I imagine this being there, this 135 degree line coming out from the corner, and I and I try and step over it. I've tried to force myself to walk on them a few times to get used to the fact that they aren't going, they're not really important and they don't matter, and it's dumb that I do that. And I don't. I found that that doesn't really help in any way. I still want to do it. Yeah. Um. But. Yeah, like I said, it doesn't really get in the way. It just sometimes it'll look funny because I'll like all of a sudden take a really big step or like a bunch of really small steps in a row. Most people don't notice or they think, oh, that was weird. And then they just forget that I did it. Um, but now everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole machination there. It's a, it's a t- <laughs> There's more to it for sure. 
So I think it's important to recognize though that the examples we gave are pretty innocuous overall, but for sometimes sometimes what we see with like individuals with special needs or a developmental disability, what'll happen is they engage in these behaviors to such excessive points that it actually gets in the way of independent living. It gets in the and it can actually be harmful. So um, you know, an example I always give is I, I worked with a kid who would hand flap and hand flap and hand flap to the degree that he couldn't even contact any instruction in his classroom. He couldn't attend to the lesson. He couldn't attend to the work that they were doing. So he wasn't contacting any sort of educational a meaningful education, which that became a different type of problem. Or another kid that's like rocking in class and maybe he's rocking so much that he becomes stigmatized by other kids in the classroom. He's made to look weird. He you know quote unquote he's a weird kid because he's rocking in class when it's just some type of stereotypy that he's engaging in. So it, it becomes a, a little bit of a problem for some individuals who have more severe or more um, blatant examples of this type of behavior, which is why it becomes such a, a treatment concern, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just a couple more examples uh, based to follow up on what you said, because you gave some really good ones, is just there with those vocal stereotypies, one of the goals with individuals with disabilities is almost invariably to help them learn to communicate and to communicate effectively and to communicate better. And when they're engaging in these really high rates of vocal stereotypy where they're saying these nonproductive sounds, it's really hard to teach them to stop what they're doing and perform new words because they're so stuck in that pattern that it's difficult to interrupt that and then try and have them do something that they really don't want to do that they don't really care about doing that doesn't really have an immediate payoff for them but is really going to be important in the long run for them having some independence and being able to have some kind of social relationships is that they need to be able to communicate effectively with people around them so if they're engaging in that stereotypy at such a high rate that it's really difficult to intervene with some kind of uh, language acquisition, uh, that's really going to have an impact on them. That's another reason. And I was just thinking about this this point of it being stigmatizing sh should certainly be something that's worth highlighting because you imagine the kids in class who are saying like, there's Tommy over there in the corner who's just like rocking back and forth so hard. It looks like he's listening to, you know, a heavy metal song and, and you know, just headbanging the whole time. He's listening to Black um, Sabbath. Like, exactly. Going back to Black Sabbath. It's like, I don't want to hang out with that kid. That kid's freaking me out, man. <laughs> and that's not an unfair thing for a kid in school who has no context for what's going on to have that, you know. So obviously it's great to want to educate people and say, hey, this is something that people are dealing with and it's not something that's like, you know, we don't treat them like they're bad people or anything like that. But it's going to be, it's going to be next to impossible to reach every single kid and, and like, let them know, like, this is something that might happen. Here's how you deal with it. So especially because that might just stigmatize those kids even further to like really call a ton of attention to it. So it's, it's just really a difficult place to be. So there is some research out there that actually shows that like, it's not just as easy as telling that person to stop, right? Like it's not just, you can't just tell that person to stop rocking or stop flapping their hands. There are some pretty significant studies out there to demonstrate that if you start suppressing that behavior or start trying to really reduce it without providing an appropriate alternative, people can engage in some really intense self-injurious problem behavior. It can evolve into some really intense and dangerous topographies of behavior, some different behaviors that are more concerning for that person that actually can result in medical intervention. Or, you know, for example, I worked with an individual who would press mm -hmm. their eyeballs. And the assumption was because we couldn't, they couldn't communicate why they would do it. The assumption was that they would see phosphines, those bright flashing lights that, that would pop up whenever you press your eyes too hard. Like when you rub your eyes too hard, you see those like, it looks like sparkles. So that was the assumption that that was part of what was, was self-stimulatory. Now, if we tried to reduce that in any sort of way, we could have resulted in that 
that behavior getting worse and that person possibly blinding Yikes. themselves. So that's what we have to mind. We have to be mindful of that. So there is research out there that shows that. Yeah, this whole idea of just sort of telling them no. Sorry, when you were saying that, it made me think that it works just about as well to tell a child who's engaging in this stereotypic behavior and just telling them no to stop as it would to tell someone who is a habitual smoker and just say, no, stop smoking. So, yeah, yeah don't do don't that. Do that. <laughs> if that was all if that was all it took, then uh, Nicorette would not have a business at all. And so many smoking cessation programs that people will try and, and do um, drinking the same way. And not to say that that the stereotypy is an addiction, but just to say that just telling someone stop it is an ineffective thing to do when they have that well established a pattern in their behavior. Yeah. You would think the truth ads would be more effective if they just said, hey, don't. <laughs> exactly. All right, so why do children engage in these stereotypic behavior patterns? Well, there are lots of hypotheses, but for the purposes of our discussion today, we'll really only discuss a couple of the main hypotheses that are related to the use of weighted vests. And the first one I'm going to talk about is called homeostatic theory and or homeostatic theory of stereotyped um, behaviors. This was seems to have been largely proposed by two authors named Hutt and Hutt in the 1960s. That was as far back as I could find research on this. I really dug around quite a bit to see if I could figure out what this theory was and where it was proposed and what was said about it. And the gist of it is this. The idea here is that these individuals are compelled to maintain a really high level of energy output. So it's sort of like they're always doing something and they need to make that that energy that they're doing matched at all times, essentially. So it's sort of like they just have this momentum in how much energy they're using and they just need to keep that momentum up all the time. And that is sort of this, this homeostatic theory of stereotyped behaviors is essentially th that they engage in those behaviors so that they keep their energy going. Okay. This is relevant to the, uh, this idea of weighted vests because the idea here is if they're draped in weights, then their energy is now spent just holding themselves up and holding the weight rather than engaging in those stereotyped behaviors. And yeah, so that's sort of how those things are related. Okay. So essentially what they're trying to say is that if they are allocating their energy to maintaining the weight or maintaining their body in relation to the weight, then they're not going to engage in those other behaviors that will require the energy. Basically they're re resourcing or they're, they're reallocating their resources is essentially what they're doing. Yes. I think that's how you could certainly describe this. Although this does make me think that this is essentially just weight training at that point. And so like, you're going to end up with this buff little kid who's got, you know, all these chiseled <laughs> muscles and then you got to keep increasing the weight. They get harder and harder and they just keep getting buffer and buffer. Yeah. And his hand flapping is so strong. <laughs> Good. So I know that's like, that sounds pretty insensitive, but I mean, let's, let's, I mean, if you, if you're realistic about it, if I'm putting more weights on the person and they are acclimating to the weights and their muscles are getting stronger to deal with the weights and they are going to get stronger. That's just, <laughs> That's, I feel like that's, that's, that's weight training 101. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's why I sort of phrased it as a joke, but I really mean it seriously that that's what happens if you, or what you would expect to have happen if you add those weights, then eventually they're just going to get used to the weight because they're, they're now stronger and now they need to increase the energy output again. It's like teaching a kid who is physically aggressive to punch a punching bag. You're teaching them to build calluses on their knuckles so they, they, they won't hurt when they hit you and they're, you're teaching them to target better. 
Like you're teaching them to be better at physical aggression. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> we, and we talked a bit about this in our anger management episode, which I originally had just wanted to focus in on this idea of getting it out, uh, as t- in terms of managing an aggression. And I'm like, all you're actually doing is practicing that problem behavior and getting better at it. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that's all that that does. Um, but, so I'm really glad to actually have that, bring that back. It's full circle, my friend, full circle. <laughs> Another hypothesis that we're discussing in relation to this type of, of output and, and stimming and, and all this stuff is has to do with sensory processing disorder. And this is something that you've probably heard a little bit. Um, I, I've been hearing it more or a lot in the last probably five years than I have ever in my entire career. Uh, it seems to be kind of like this. It's, it's got this groundswell. That's, that's coming along with it. And the idea is that with sensory processing disorders, sensory information uh, that is normally received by the receptors um, is pretty much processed incorrectly by the brain and pr- produces like a like a hypersensitivity or a hyposensitivity sensitivity to common stimuli. So essentially um, what's happening is they're, in, they're intaking stimuli, it's not working, your brain's not working, you're, it's not processing it, and you either become oversensitive or undersensitive to those stimuli. Yeah, and so... Uh, this this is a definition that comes from the 1970s. Ornitz 1974 said, quote, stereotypic behaviors reflect the child's attempt to lower arousal, self-calm, or increase arousal, sensory seeking. So, end quote. So essentially, it is whatever you want it to be. And, um, but yeah, it is what's sort of being proposed here is that they, because they're not, their brain is not appropriately processing their sensory intake, at least that's the hypothesis that they they move or they engage in these repetitive rapid rhythmic behaviors so that they can help organize that sensory information or just to sort of decrease the noise that they're experiencing maybe by distracting themselves or focusing on something else I'm not I'm not entirely sure but that's this uh, this idea of sensory processing disorder is that their brain is not interpreting stimuli correctly, just as you said. I don't really know how this is supposed to be related to weighted vests, but this is one that was specifically listed on a, it was either an article or a website or something that I read that was talking about, this is why we use weighted vests. It's because children have sensory processing disorder, and so we use weighted vests to help them with that. Now, I'm going to talk about this a bit more later, Um, but I experience and this is related to this idea i think is i was at a school where i was working with an individual and at the same time that i was there they had their ot hour which stands for occupational therapy and so their ot comes in and does their work and put this kid in a weighted vest something i found out later that the mother had strictly prohibited um but but they did it anyway um and and i asked her why and she said it was for this individual to help him find his body in space and time and i was confused that feels very existential it does like all all it takes is a little weight and then you can find yourself in in space and time so if you ever feel like you're lost, I guess you just need to go work out and you will find yourself. If you, if you ever wonder what your purpose is, just put on a just just pick up a couple dumbbells and you'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's pretty intense. I that's a very specific like what does that even mean? I don't know. I feel like I don't understand what that means. Like that that they're trying to give them spatial awareness? They're using weighted vests to give them spatial awareness. Is that what she was trying to say? I get the impression more that it was like he didn't know where his limbs were in relation to his body. And so putting on the weighted vest helped him orient to them. 
like because there's such a contrast with his light arms versus his weighted arms i just don't understand i i mean i get anyway that's that's neither here nor there we're that's i i feel i feel for that person yeah (laughs) (laughs) so essentially um what's what's important to recognize about this is there's not really any protocols or guidelines for ot's for using a weighted vest right so there's nothing specific that says this is when they should use it how they should use it or anything like that or how long Um, or how long uh, or anything like that so um, except that 10% of the child's body weight has been recommended. So they're looking at a weighted vest that's 10% of that child's specific body weight at that time, right? So I guess if this is a 50-pound kid, then they're wearing five pounds worth of weights, which is probably about as much as their clothes weigh altogether. Right. So they're so they already their their clothes are their own weighted vest. There you go. So uh, one study even said uh, specifically that evidence-based practice guidelines and fidelity measures have not been developed for these interventions. And these interventions have been recommended or applied by educators, psychologists, occupational therapists, and paraprofessionals, often without any specific protocol. And that's the case Smith et al. 2014 study. So, so essentially, people are using this without any sort of evidence-based practice or guideline for it. Right, except for usually recommended 10% of body weight. Actually, that reminds me, too, that following up on that situation, uh, we had confronted the school saying, we don't think this is an appropriate intervention. And also, the parent has requested that you stop. And they came back and said, like, no, we know that this works. We're going to use it. This is in the child's best interest. And the supervisors I was working with at the time asked them to provide evidence that this thing worked. And they're like, and they fired back with, well, we don't really have any evidence per se. Um, and so they're like, well, how about some like articles to back this up? And they're like, well, there, there isn't really any research to back this up either. Um, but that's because this is, it's, it's something that's hard to measure, but we know that it works. And so they were kind of like proud of the fact that they didn't have any research, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty important callback to like the pseudoscience episode, right? Like if yeah. there's not really a lot of good evidence and it's a lot of anecdotal support, then you're probably not going to get I mean, it's probably not scientifically sound. Yeah. So that actually brings us to very appropriately sensory integration therapy. Oh, sit you don't call it sit therapy because that would be like calling it sensory integration therapy therapy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you just call it sit. But okay. this is not, I mean, this this is a lot to unpack. And so I really actually have planned for a while to do a full episode of this. And I'd really like to save it for a time when we can do a real deep dive discussion on sensory integration therapy, what it means, where it comes from, the history of this. Suffice it to say for this episode that at least with respect to weighted vests, it has been traced back to some of the uh, some articles published by three authors in particular, Ayers, Baranek, and Dunn in the 80s and 90s. And they all, all actually mostly published separate from one another. And as I was looking through these articles, I was trying to find specific things that they were saying to that would have led to this idea of there being weighted vests which did happen for some of them. Most of what I found interestingly was from that second author, Baranek or Baranek maybe uh, in the early two thousands or even more recently than that. Now, interestingly for some of the people who have talked about using sensory integration therapy with respect to Ayers system and Ayers had the system called the Ayers sensory integration protocol, maybe, I don't know, but it was called Ayers sensory integration that he had published way back, I think in the seventies or eighties at this time. And he had laid out this huge framework for this. And a lot of people were claiming to use sensor integration therapy based on Ayer's work. 
However, a f- I found this in a couple of different places. There was criticisms of this research in these occupational therapy journals or not, but at least with respect to using sensory integration therapy, that they weren't finding robust outcomes at all. Matter of fact, they mostly were finding nothing at all. And I found one uh, review that specifically said there is no evidence, there is no strong evidence for sensory integration therapy the whole group of it, period. Well, this person was saying that all the people who have been publishing on this, who have been publishing manuals on this, who have been purporting this, they actually have not used any of the critical core features of IR's system. And um, and so specifically, uh, I, I listed out some of those features in, in just a second, um, but it's just, I think, used, interesting to note that because potentially they might argue that the reason that weighted vests don't work is because they're not using the the features of the system as it was originally designed. So let's go ahead and dig into those core features of a system. Yeah. So how do you correctly use a weighted vest? Right. That's what we want to look at here. Right. Okay. So here's, so there are a few steps. The first one, I think it's pretty important. And I, and I'd like to provide a little bit of a, a preface to this saying that this is coming from authorless, from an authorless citation. We could not find an author for this particular set of steps. Correct. Yeah. What it was is there was an article that had, it just listed this thing, but it didn't have a publication outlet. It didn't have a name. It didn't have a year. It didn't have, it was just a page that was it was written as if it were an article but it didn't have any other information it was like someone had taken an article and just cut all the information away from it and just left you with the text hmm red flags yes okay so anyway here's what this is supposed to look like step one ensure physical safety i think that's an appropriate step i'm actually i can i can align with that yeah that one's a good one Okay, so step two, present sensory opportunities. Did they have any definitions of sensory opportunities or what that looked like? Nope, this is exactly what they said, present sensory opportunities. Okay, so probably need some operational definitions there. Step three, help maintain appropriate levels of alertness. Okay. Okay, don't know what those are or how to measure them. Yep, that, that one's a little unclear. Step four, to challenge postural, ocular, oral, or bilateral motor control. That's what. That's exactly what it says. Yes. Two challenge. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry if I read that as a question and not a step. I just wasn't sure. <laughs> All right. Step five: challenge practice and organization of behavior. Okay. So how? So how do they challenge that? Doesn't say. Step six: collaborate in an activity choice. Okay. Choice is good. I can back up choice and activity choice in particular. I think that's good for quality of life, right? So maybe that's not so bad. Um, Step seven, tailor activity to present a just right challenge. Would that be like a, like, why don't they call that a Goldilocks challenge? I don't know. I feel like that would be way more appropriate. Wouldn't that be like, wouldn't it have a little bit of a ring to it? I think so. It's just right. Yeah. The just right challenge makes it sound political. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that's what they mean. <laughs> the conservative challenge. All right. Step eight, uh, ensure that activities are successful. Okay. So what are they going to do to ensure that? Are they going to push through? Or are they going to end on a good note? Like, what does that look like? And then step nine, support the child's intrinsic motivation to play. Okay. Okay. All right. If it's intrinsic, they need support. I don't know. Maybe. I, you know? That, that, that's, that seems a little, little interesting. And then step 10, establish a therapeutic alliance. Here's my qualm with that one. Shouldn't they do that at the beginning? <laughs> I know. That should be step two, maybe. <laughs> that should be step like one or two. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, I'm fine with the therapeutic alliance, but maybe they just don't have it ordered correctly. Yeah. So 
yeah, the those were some of the steps. I mean, essentially what I got from when I was trying to read through some of the Ayers stuff was a emphasis on making this, giving the child lots of opportunities to do things and also having them be highly engaged with a back and forth with whoever it was they're working with. And all that seems fine. Like if we're teaching or learning or practicing anything, having the child like stay engaged and as, and be, I guess, independently invested in the process as much as possible sounds fine to me. Some of the stuff I don't, I don't really know how to, how to identify. Like, I don't know what alertness means or how to, how I would measure it. I mean, uh, to me, this reads, make sure they're awake, you know? Yeah. Or, or even attending to the task. I mean, I think that that's, if if that's the route they're going, I think that makes sense, but then you're working on attending and not whatever other activity. Right. And at that point, then you just need to get into sort of curriculum and make sure that you have a curriculum that's appropriate for them and what they're working on because attending to a task that's not really useful for them is just, they may as well not be attending at that point. So another thing that I saw, and this is actually part of that same authorless citation was uh, they said there should be a minimum of 23 different types of equipment, which I don't have any idea how to orient to that. I mean, that reminds me of the movie 23 with Jim Carrey. Jim that, Carrey? Yeah, that was like a sort of horror movie thriller, I guess. And also, like, what a random number. And also, that seems like a lot of things. Like, why why does it have to be 23? Right, right. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, that's a very specific. And then it, does, it doesn't provide any, like, um, any guidelines for what that equipment should be, right? Yeah. So I suppose, like, lawnmowers probably be fine. Yeah. Yeah, like like a washer and a dryer. Does that count as like a set of equipment, or is that two different pieces of equipment? <laughs> this kid like crawling in and out of a washer and dryer. I mean, you know, I, I just I'm just curious. I mean, what if what if it's a washer and dryer and it's like an attached set of you know, or is it two separate? I mean, you have to consider that. I, I there's just not a clear definition for what it looks like, and that would be my concern is that somebody who's implementing this this procedure or anything like this doesn't have enough instruction or direction to properly implement it or safely implement it or consistently implement it. I did get to visit a sensory integration center. It was like a whole building devoted to this. It was huge. And it looked like a, it looked like an indoor playground mixed with like a BDSM place because there's like all these weird swings randomly attached to like the ceiling that came down and there I don't, so there was this giant foam pit that looked like a ton of fun actually um, <laughs> but then there would be all these things where there's like straps and stuff to like hold you in place for a hot second um, hmm. or like these weird cocoon looking things that kids would like get all wrapped up in and I'm like I can't tell if you're being restrained or if you're playing or what's going on are you sure you didn't walk into like the leather factory? <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of kids there for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's it, there's that's of all the crossovers you would think that's probably not one that we needed. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, and I think it comes back to that idea that like you know it, it, when it comes back to sound science, there's usually some good definitions, there's some good operational definitions, some clear procedures, some way to replicate what you're doing, and I don't know that there's a way to replicate this in a really um, consistent way. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least the way that it has been has been done so far, and it's possible that as these authors have have pointed out as a criticism that 
it could be done in that way, but nobody has been doing it that way, at least not publishing it that way consistently. So right. if that research ever happens, then we'll see. But another part of what's often implemented inside of sensory integration therapy is something called deep pressure. This is, I mean, basically the same idea as a massage, really. Um, and so according to an article by Morrison in 2007, he says, quote, the use of a weighted vest is based on the sensory integrative frame of reference. It is argued that the weight in the vest provides proprioception, deep pressure, which provides calming input to the central nervous system by promoting the production of neurotransmitters such as serotonin and dopamine, end quote. There seems like a lot of sort of ifs, ands in there um, that, you know, how, how do we know that it's promoting these things? How do we know that it's actually having this effect? Anyway, so this is the idea of this whole deep pressure thing is this proprioceptive, you're being pushed on sort of thing. And, you know, I get it. Massages feel good. That's fine. Um, actually, Martha Peleas, who does like child development research and work, has really um, pushed this idea of massage. And she's done some really great research. And she seems to have been pretty convinced by the research that massage um, for uh, infants, obviously not like deep tissue, like knuckle in the back type massage, but just gentle sort of pressure that you can put on them, actually is uh, can be really good for them as well as good for the mom. And it's a way for them to be around and supporting the child without and often i think the idea is that it will it's the child's less likely to cry if they sort of have this constant touch that's going on um that maybe Mm. it creates a a context where they feel safe unclear so i mean based on that there is that sort of makes sense i personally like hate tight clothes and do not like to have a ton of pressure put on me i'm also not a huge fan of massages i've had some good massages from like a professional masseuse but I, I don't really seek them out all that much, but that's, you know, I understand that's me, but I think that's relevant here too, because it's not like these kids are getting a choice here. Right. And, and, you know, I, you know, as much as I might like a massage, it makes me sleepy most of the time. But it, <laughs> it, again, I think it comes down to like, you know, when we talk about something like this, we're talking about an intervention. We're not talking about um, somebody going and having a choice and selecting like out of a, a an array of preferences. We're talking specifically about, Hey, this is the type of therapy that we're going to put on you. To, to help you stop engaging in behaviors that you like to engage in. Right. And although those might be behaviors that do need to be addressed in some way systematically, I think there is a bigger question inside of this. I thought about mentioning earlier of under what conditions do you try and stop or change someone's behavior? Mm-hmm. And it really has to do with when they are not in a position to make the choice that is going to lead them having the best outcomes for their life because they they aren't informed about what that and it's very difficult to inform them because maybe they lack those communication skills Mm -hmm. that being said yes you're right that this is sort of like this is a thing that you do so i'm just going to put a weighted vest on you make it stop oh well hold on let me rephrase that i'm going to put a weighted vest on you and hope that it makes you stop yeah 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 yeah. if we're going to align with what the current body of literature says (laughs) Right. And good segue. Speaking of literature, let's dig into some of the research on this. Yes. Okay. So, you know, we're research nerds. So let's start with um, a review article in 2009. Okay. So in this article in 2009, it stated, quote, while there is only a limited body of research and a number of methodological weaknesses on balance, indications that are that are are that weighted vests are ineffective. 
There may be an arguable case for continued research on this intervention, but weighted vest cannot be recommended for clinical application at this point. I would argue that this article and this sentence itself is the death knell for weighted vests. <laughs> like that, that I think that that's, I mean, that's going to be kind of like the, the, the framework that we're going to go over and all this, but we're going to get more specific. But I think that's kind of like the boom, like that's the nail in the coffin already. Yeah. Yes. And that, that article in particular has been cited a lot when looking at some of this research, but there are many, many, many more. So um, this one, this next one is by Reichow et al. in 2009. This is in the journal Focus on Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities. And the authors said, quote, this allowed the comparison of three different conditions, weighted vests, vest with no weight, which served as a placebo, and no vest, which served as a baseline. The results showed no differentiation and engagement between the conditions for any of the participants. End quote. So this one I actually pulled from a summary, basically, of their article where they were talking about the results and showing that it there was no effect, basically. It didn't matter. Uh, having no vest, a vest with weight, or a vest without weight, all the same rates. Again, probably indicating that those people who had reported seeing a difference were trying to look for a difference. Yeah. So I think it's important. There's no there's no differentiation, right? There's no change across any of those conditions. And that, I think, is a, is pretty important to recognize as part of the literature. So the Hodges et al. 2011 article um, that we're going to reference here says, quote, randomized and blind study measured the effects of a weight of wearing a weighted vest on stereotyped behaviors and heart rate for six children with autism in the classroom. Weighted vest did not decrease motoric stereotyped behaviors in any participant. Verbal stereotyped behaviors decreased in one participant. Weighted vest did not decrease heart rate. Heart rate increased in one participant. Based on this protocol, the use of weighted vests to decrease stereotyped behaviors or arousal in children with autism in the classroom was not supported. So this was as soon as 2011 that they're still saying that, hey, there's not really a lot of evidence that this works. Yes, that is accurate. And also that Specifically, so the weighted vests have been claimed to do multiple things. Some of them is uh, help manage stereotyped behavior. Some of them is to help um, manage their arousal or their sensory problems. And this one specifically, at least addressing arousal, saying this did not, this actually made it worse for them. Hmm. It either had no effect or made it worse. Uh, yeah. There was an article in 2016 by Parham and Goldman in the Journal of Occupational Therapy. This one's incredibly important because this is from the Journal of Occupational Therapy. The people who are most likely, not the journal necessarily, but occupational therapists, the people are the ones who are most likely to use weighted vests as an intervention for the clients they serve. And in this journal, in this article, they said, quote, other somatosensory-based interventions, such as brushing protocol, which we should go over later, or weighted vests, do not yet have adequate research to evaluate their effectiveness with this population, end quote. So this is coming straight from the horse's mouth at this point, that weighted vests do not have support for use, of, for use as an intervention with children with, these, with autism or other intellectual disabilities. Yeah, and you know when we get to the end of the the research, I'm gonna there there I've had some anecdotal reports where people have said this is effective, and coming from a behavioral standpoint, I can tell you exactly why it looks like it's effective, but it, they think it's effective for the wrong reasons. So I can give you the like we'll we'll talk about that in a bit, but we do want to get into like why this is like some of the other research too, and kind of really dig in, and finish this up first. So, um, but I want to go back to that because there's not adequate research, even though it's anecdotal re- support, quote unquote. That it does work, uh, and I'll tell you why. So um, there's also the Taylor et al. 2007 article or 2017 article that said that was a literature review um, that used the standards recommended by the What Works Clearinghouse. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show a little bit. So the What Works Clearinghouse is this awesome, 
awesome group of people who go around specifically vetting um, types of interventions, types of procedures, types of protocols, and they apply a strict criteria of what would constitute something being evidence-based. And there needs to be a certain, like, we'll actually go through the criteria in just a second, but essentially what happens is that somebody will try and submit something to them, or I believe they'll also have independent people who will research particular protocols, especially ones that are popular, and they'll go through all of the evidence that they can find on it, and they'll try and see, does it meet at least a bare minimum threshold of what should be considered evidence-based? And their bare minimum threshold is really stringent. Um, it's yeah. It's got to be pretty good in order to meet the what works clearinghouse definition of an evidence-based practice okay so looking at this it, there's four specific criteria right yes what it has to meet when it comes to specifically working with uh, uh what's called a small n population which is to say one individual or working with um with a study uh, designed to look at small groups of individuals Okay, so here are the criteria that they outlined for, the, and they actually did, they looked at studies that were, that included this criteria. So one, it had to be a single case research design, which means that it was one person, maybe it, like specifically one person and looking at whether this intervention was impactful for that one person. Oh, actually, I mean, it, it's not necessarily with one person, but it's that every participant that is involved is both their own test and control condition. They experience right. both the test and control condition. So there might be a lot of people, but as long as they all had exposure to it, a test control condition in a experimental fashion, then it would be still considered single case design. Right. Right. Okay. So then, and then the other part, one of the other criteria were that there was inclusion of at least one individual with autism. Right. There was an examination of the effects of weighted vest on a particular dependent variable. So they were looking at whether or not that weighted vest impacted a specific be behavior or whatever the dependent variable they selected was. Um, and th there was some publication in English in a peer-reviewed journal in the past 25 years. So that's what they looked at. So the last 25 years of research. Yes. Uh, and okay. So, yeah, th these are – and I mean, that was actually just the criteria for being involved in this uh, in this review at all. Right. So here's what it said. Surprisingly, right? Uh, the results of the review show that the use of weighted vests with individuals with autism or autism spectrum disorder or ASD or however you want to describe that is not an evidence-based practice. So it's not evidence-based. They determined with that strict criteria that it still didn't meet that evidence-based practice standard. Yeah. And I... I should have listed more of the criteria in here. I'm thinking about because I I was looking into some of them because again these these criteria that we mentioned were the ones that were how those studies were included in the review and those were broad enough that they should capture a lot of different things um, and the criteria that What Works Clearinghouse uses has to do with how much change there was between like a baseline intervention, um, whether or not it met certain statistical controls, um, that there were enough studies that had been published. So there has to be a certain number of times that this uh, was replicated. Um, all of that stuff gets factored into whether or not it meets the definition of evidence-based practice. And as you said, it here with reviewing those studies, it clearly did not. It did not. Sorry. Sorry, weighted vests. Yep. Well, not sorry, not sorry, but <laughs> sorry, not sorry, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I went, I went full Demi Lovato there. <laughs> Never go full Demi Lovato. <laughs> <laughs> half, yeah, half Demi Lovato. <laughs> Specifically, it's a, it ends up being a bad reference because she just had a heroin overdose. Oh no. Yeah, so it's probably not good to be. She's okay. She's alive. She's in recovery. That's but good. full Demi Lovato would be a heroin addiction. Great. So now, full Demi Lovato is a euphemism for heroin overdose. Yeah. So. Half Demi Lovato. 
which is she just sorry, not sorry. <laughs> She's just confident. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, so we have a couple of things to discuss with respect to the potential for harm. I want to talk, tackle one of them now and then actually tell a story at the end of this episode about a, a specific example of this. But Stevenson and Carter in 2008 said, quote, the effect of prolonged wearing of a weighted vest needs to be considered. It is recommended that children carry no more than 10 to 15% of their body weight in a backpack, and recent research evidence suggests that 10% is a safer limit. While the weight in a vest is more evenly distributed than a backpack, the maximum weight used in the studies was at the upper end of the safe range. So they were talking about a review they did. Mm -hmm. While a vest was worn for a maximum of two hours at a time in studies in the current review, it has been reported that they can be worn for up to four hours at a time and for most of the school day. Clearly, these are much longer periods than a backpack would typically be carried by a child. One issue that does need consideration is the effect, per se, of carrying this amount of weight suspended above the center of gravity, particularly for an extended period of time. If vests do have effects, and the evidence on this point remains unconvincing at this stage, it is possible that these may be artifacts of fatigue and unrelated to purported sensory integrative mechanisms. End quote. That was a lot, a, to, a lot say. to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, like one of the, probably the lesser concern is that, you know, the effects that they're seeing is that because these kids are tired, right? Like that's probably, that's probably the least concerning thing, but still a concern. Like if that's the least concerning thing that we're just tiring kids out by making them carry weight all day, then that's, that's still a problem. That's still harmful. This actually kind of reminds me of the, there was a practice that it might still be around. I'm not entirely sure, but it was like forced exercise as punishment. So Mm -hmm. like you did something wrong, you got to do a bunch of push-ups. So I'm thinking of, okay, I need to stop picking my nails. So I'm going to, every time I pick my nails, I'm going to have to carry around a 50 pound weight for four hours. And that'll be (laughs) what I do. I mean, that's not that I weigh 500 pounds. I don't, but (laughs) because that'd be 10% of my body weight. Um, But imagining like having to carry around all this weight around as I mean, I think they're supposed to be preventative, preventative, but you can imagine that I, I wouldn't be picking my fingernails, but not because this was an effective treatment for stopping me from picking my fingernails, but because I'm busy carrying around a ton of weight. Right. Right. And you know, that's, that's exactly it. Like I, I think about like, if I, if we had to introduce something like that for me, I would have to carry about 21 pounds, 22 pounds around at any time. And I would have to, I would literally have to carry around 22 pounds for four hours. And like, I used a bowl and I used to have a 12 pound bowling ball and that was heavy enough. Like I can't imagine carrying around 22 pounds at any given time. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I was interested in some of the purported benefits that were mentioned in for weighted vests. And so specifically I went to a website that was selling weighted vests and they had this interesting FAQ page. And Mm. so some of these things do sort of act as if they're trying to promote weighted vests, but some of them actually sound kind of damning in terms of how recommended something like this would be. And they profit from this. So I'm curious about their motives here. Anyway, so the first question that they have in their FAQ section was, do all children with autism need one, referring to a weighted vest? And the answer they give is, and I'm quoting them directly here, you should use a weighted vest with a child when you're attempting to help them focus or calm down. They do not help all children because they can be uncomfortable and distracting for some. Pay attention when introducing one, especially if the child has significant communication challenges. Discontinue if you see no benefit or it causes any distress. All right. So that's that's a lot of verbiage to not really say anything. Yeah. And I mean, I, I appreciate that they're taking the responsibility to say, maybe don't. 
Um, yeah. And it also does seem like they're saying don't like what they're really just saying here is just don't hurt your kid. So right. like use this unless it hurts your kid and then don't use it, which I think is sort of just that's something you say about any product. Yeah. And so another question they have on here and and, and the FAQ is, do weighted vests decrease stimming or stereotypical behavior? And their response is, uh, there's almost no research on whether or not weighted vests decrease stereotypical behaviors in children with autism. Therapists report observing some children decrease quote-unquote stimming behavior while wearing one. However, there is little, if any, research on this topic, which is literally negating everything they're doing (laughs) on this website. Yes. Also... I would like to correct them a little bit. There is some amount of research on this. Actually, kind of a lot. I found dozens of studies on this, and they show that it was not effective. So there's there's little research to say that it's effective. There is lots of research to say that it's not effective. Yeah, exactly. Let's be, let's be clear, FAQ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so the other question on here is, what kind of therapy is a weighted vest? And they say uh, that this type of therapy falls under the umbrella of sensory integration therapy. Sensory integration therapy, or SIT, is used usually performed by an occupational therapist trained in sensory integration. These therapists believe that inattentiveness and stereotypical behaviors are caused by over or under sensitivity to sensitive sensory input. Wearing one provides deep pressure sensory input that helps with sensory difficulties. Right. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty bold claim. Yeah, exactly. So those are some of the things that are being, I guess, purported with respect to weighted vests, even the, from people who have a financial stake in it. So, okay, let's go ahead and segue to our nice sad story that unfortunately we're going to share. Yeah. Because I feel like it's important because we talked about the harm a little bit in the term that this can be worn for too long, that the benefits are unclear, and that it could be bad for the child, physically speaking. And there was one where it got worse. So on April 18th in 2008, there was a young boy who had an autism diagnosis. His name was uh, Gabriel Poyer, I think is probably how I'd say that. And he's from Canada, so it probably has that French sound. He's in Quebec. And so there was a teacher... His teacher in his classroom wrapped him in a weighted blanket. Didn't say specifically that this was for therapeutic purposes, although I can't imagine why else she was doing it. Right. That's just a thing they do in Canada is wrap kids in weighted blankets. I kind of doubt it. Um, however, I feel, like po- I feel like poutine is something that they do in Canada. I don't feel like wrapping kids in weighted blankets <laughs> is something that they do in Canada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um and anyway, uh, have, after having been wrapped in this weighted blanket, the, the child did die. And mm. following this tragedy, the coroner made some specific recommendations. She said, quote, because the therapeutic value of weighted blankets does not seem to be proven scientifically, true, and because of the fact that they pose a risk for children's lives, we could be tempted to prohibit their use altogether. However, I believe that it is possible to manage usage in a strict manner in order to minimize the danger. I believe that certain ground rules must be respected by those who wish to use sensory pressure techniques, namely, and then she lists several things. She said she needs a health provider's advice. It has to be the weighted blanket has to be proportionate to the weight of the child. Um, the child's head should never be in the blanket. The vital signs should be constantly monitored. Um, the child must never be rolled in the blanket. Um, and then the child should never be unsupervised. And the child must be able to easily escape from the blanket so that they're not confined. And 
I like this one is my favorite of the whole thing. The child must express his or her consent, even if it is not verbal. Yeah, that is critical. So, I mean, we have situations all the time where we've got family members who never consent, like you brought up the story before, family members that don't consent to this type of treatment, and you see that there is harm. Um, You have children that don't want to be a part of it, and they are put in it because they can't quote-unquote consent or assent. Uh, they can't do any of those things. And it, and so the fact that they're including the child in that decision-making process makes a huge difference. And I think that's a really important piece to any sort of treatment, let alone uh, ones that don't work. Yeah. Okay. So that's our bummer hour, bummer corner, if you will. <laughs> Thanks, man. You're welcome. Um, so here are some... <laughs> Uh, here's some other interesting tidbits that I found some things that I had some questions about that I wanted to look up to, um, find out about specifically. So, um, one, we mentioned these weighted blank blankets and weighted vests. There are also weighted lap pads and these, uh, weighted shoulder wraparounds and that these, all, all of these products, the vest blankets, lap pads, and shoulder wraparounds can weigh anywhere from, I saw three pounds to up to at least 24 pounds, depending on what you buy and how much weight you want to carry. Interesting stuff. So, I mean, I, I wonder if you could get those on like a uh, planet fitness website. <laughs> it's still to do with weight training. Uh, sometimes it looks like it's uh, sewn, in, it, or sometimes it's sewn to look like a normal piece of clothing, such as a jean jacket. But it usually looks like a big black or monochromatic vest. You know, it's pretty like uh, it. It stands out quite a bit. I did see a site that was selling them. They sort of looked like it. Sort of looked like a bib in a way, um, although it was a vest that was painted with this sort of cartoonish outfit of a worker. So it was like a firefighter styled vest or a like business person where it had like a little briefcase on the side of the vest thing. I don't know. Hmm. It was kind of weird. So that's another thing. Uh, we mentioned the fact that these are usually sewn in, but you often can purchase additional weights to add to if it's the blanket or belt or lap pad, whatever it is to make it heavier. If you would like to, they'll have to have little compartments or stuff to add those weights to make them heavier. Okay. That's interesting. Some deep pressure sensory compression vests actually appear to be weighted vests that are more difficult to take off. So we mentioned the the coroner's recommendations that they should be able to easily get out of these weighted blankets and weighted clothing. But it looks like that these deep pressure ones are a little bit more difficult to get out of. Yeah, I was trying to find more information about these. And it looks like they... because. At first, I thought maybe they were just like really tight clothes, and so it felt like pressure. And it seemed like maybe some of them are, but they almost all of the ones I saw seemed to include weight as well. So it was just like a, a tight-fitting weighted vest that was hard to take off because they specifically arranged it so you couldn't access the the takeoff point in, from the front where most of them mm. are latched together. And and as you said, this is like these children who are trying to get out of it. Um, they're like, oh, this might be a good vest for children who are like trying to escape from their vest. I'm like, if they're trying to escape from their vest, take it off. <laughs> that's, ha- right, that's how you right. deal with that. You don't give them a vest that they can't get out of. Right, exactly. <sighs> uh, sometimes these weighted vests are called an occupational therapy on task vest or an OT on task vest, which is a very nice sounding name for what it is not. Yeah, that sounds, um, I don't know, that sounds pretty menacing to me. <laughs> That's fair. Like if somebody is like, put on your work vest. <laughs> Leave me alone. Leave me alone. That's, I'm, I'm not wearing a work vest. And then uh, in some of the price ranges, uh, you, you find any of the stuff anywhere between 30 bucks and $200. So there's a pretty um, extensive range there. I mean, not super expensive. It's not like super expensive medical equipment, but it is something that is like, it can get pretty costly. 
especially for something that doesn't seem to have any evidence to really back up how useful it is. And I saw some of the blankets go up well over $500, um, if that's something you were looking for. So, Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right, cool. Well, do you have anything else you want to... Yeah. Yeah. So, so in my experience and kind of what I've seen, and this is, this is obviously going back to like anecdotal stuff, but I can tie it back to some behavioral research and principles of reinforcement and stuff like that. I've seen weighted best used a lot in situations where a child is maybe having a, a problem. They're having some challenging behavior. They're, they're not very calm. Right. Um, and the vest is delivered contingent on problem behavior. It's not ever delivered as like an antecedent manipulation. It's not de- it's not put on that person as as like a preventative strategy. It's delivered as part of a a management strategy to get that person to calm down. But also while they're in the vest, they receive necessary reinforcers to help them calm down. They get um, access to snacks. They get a break from their tasks. They get whatever whatever may be going on, whatever that preference is, whatever they're trying to get, they get it while they're in the vest. So essentially what ends up happening is the vest becomes a signal that good things are to come. It's not that the vest itself is reinforcing. It's the vest is a signal that things are about to get better. It's like if someone um, put me in handcuffs and like, and now you can play all of your favorite games in the world. I was like, exactly. All right. Br- all right. I will take those handcuffs. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's exactly what it's like. And so, so when people argue that it works, it's probably because of some behavioral mechanism in place that they're not aware of that is making it look like it works, but it's just that some type of reinforcement strategy is working instead. Excellent point. So I did want to say, in sort of doing our due diligence here, I I really dug through a lot of articles to try and find as much information as I could. And specifically, I wanted to find the, inf- the those research studies that were saying this is an effective intervention. And I mean, they're just not out there. I found dozens of studies pulling this apart and looking at it in different ways and saying, this isn't effective. This doesn't work. This isn't effective. This doesn't work. This isn't effective. Maybe it's harmful, but it definitely doesn't work. This doesn't seem to really do anything, but for that reason, we can't really recommend it. Like those are the kind of things that I saw repeatedly for like at least a couple of decades worth of research. There were a couple of studies where they found one where there were like there was a moderate statistically insignificant decrease in this rate of their stereotypic behavior pattern. There was one that was like children would actually uh, ask to wear these things. Um, Probably as you said, because when they do, they got breaks and snacks and all kinds of good stuff when they did, but they didn't say that in their study. And so there was like maybe two or three things here and there. But I mean, this was against dozens of studies that were just like, Nope, don't do it. Ineffective, maybe harmful, not an intervention that is going to be useful in helping your child. Like, if you're going to spend the money and the time on this, you may as well spend it doing something that works. Right. Just to say that for those people who are maybe in touch with that literature and say, like, wait a minute, there are some studies showing that this works. I want to say, like, no, there aren't. Like, there are a couple of studies that have been more positive about this and suggested that there was maybe some benefits for some individuals sometimes, rarely if ever. But the vast majority of this from every source that I could find, including those occupational therapy journals, was just like, nope, doesn't work. Yeah. And you know, if um I mean if you have journals that we didn't cite or that you want to show us that maybe demonstrate that, we would love to see them. But you know, we we do really try to like 
approach these topics from a place of, um, you know, we want to have an open mind and we want to be able to present as much information as possible that is truthful and accurate and back it up with some resources. And, you know, here in this situation, it's just one, another one of those topics that we've come across that as much as we might want to find something that says that there is support, there's just not. Right. And there's really no purpose in trying to say there's equal weight to both sides of this. Some people have opinions for and some people have against. And I always bring this argument up because to me, it's the, the easiest one to knock down is the the like flat earth thing. I'm like, we don't give equal consideration to the idea of the earth is flat. It's not. <laughs> Right. That's just not a thing. Like, And there's so many others. Like, We don't give equal consideration to the idea that, that the earth is 5,000 or 6,000 years old. It's not. Like, That's just not a thing. So we don't have to sit there and talk about this as if there is legitimate arguments on both sides. There are some arguments that are fairly weak and not very well supported on the side of the use of weighted vests. And there's a ton of arguments and evidence against the use of weighted vests for all the things that we talked about. Yep. And, you know, and that's, and that's always been our perspective is this idea of coming at this as a scientist, show us the evidence, show us the support, show it back us, back it up, you know, cite your, cite your sources when you make the claims. And, you know, when we get into this, yes, we come at this from a specific bent. We are scientists, but at the core of this, we're coming at this from a data driven space, right? We're coming at this from a, a place where there is some kind of evidence and whether you have an opinion about it or not, it doesn't really matter if the evidence isn't there. Like that's kind of our thing. It's like, I want to hear your opinion. Opinion, but your opinion doesn't matter if it doesn't if it's not backed by the science like you can tell me all day about essential oils but until you show me a research <laughs> study that tells me that it cures migraines i'm <laughs> i'm sorry your opinion is just an opinion until there's data love it and just that's the that's the approach that we come from oh man that's great <laughs> There's a YouTube thing about a guy who who like does a super satirical take on essential oils that just cracks me up super hard. <laughs> and there's like one who like he's like this one's so good for whatever it is. And he rubs on his foot and he's like, is this supposed to burn like that? I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> but, um, I love that. Yeah, it's pretty great. All right, um, one thing I also wanted to end with before we try and do some really quick take homes because this has been going on for a while is just the idea that. We've talked about the evidence, and I, and I think that's, that's the crit most critical thing is like when we talk about the science and the evidence, the research that's behind it. And it's still worth looking at what is the philosophy here? Like what is the conceptual way that this could actually work? And this is true for a lot of things. When we go back to the whole, life, the whole thing of uh, the chelation therapy with autism specifically, and we talk about some of the other pseudoscience, pseudosciences we tackled when we did the fad therapies and stuff we talked in there, that... Like, what is the conceptual way that this could possibly work? Because I could maybe get on board with something where there is a conceptual reason to believe that something would turn out a certain way. And then the research doesn't quite go that way. And you got to ask the question, well, uh, we understand the world to work like this. So I wonder if we tweak it differently, if we get a different outcome. And that's when I think when we can approach these things. I think synesthesia is a great example of this when we talked about that. Mm -hmm. Like we could wrap that inside of a conceptual frame that, framework that makes sense. So how do we then go about talking about synesthesia in a way that we can really understand it well and see if we can find it. So if something doesn't work out, then we're still, there's a reason to, to continue to pursue this. And some of these things, there just isn't one. And the weighted vest is one where it's like, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't like the, the, the idea they find their bodies in space and time, that doesn't mean anything. The idea that right. they have this like sensory processing disorder. Well, even if they do, what are the weights going to do about it? You know what I mean? Like these are things that they just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any conceptual reason to exist. So 
and I think we'll just keep bringing this point back up because it's relevant sometimes. And it's especially relevant when we talk about these things that we don't, they seem to lack coherence, even in like internal consistency. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what it comes down to is like, there may be a place in time that weighted vests work for something somewhere, but for what they're talking about here, when we talk about sense, sensory integration, it doesn't work. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's the thing is, is, you know, maybe it's not being applied in the right way. Maybe it's not maybe whatever it is right now, there is no evidence to support the way that they're doing it as it's written. You know, I actually was just thinking, um, we usually do, do this whole thing. Where we're like, Hey, let's do some take home points. But I think that the last like five minutes of us talking about this has just been like the, the major global take homes of this of like, yeah, it doesn't work. The evidence isn't there. So I don't think we need to yeah. do anything additional unless you have anything else you'd like to add. No, I think I'm good, man. Perfect. All right. Well, if you'd like to learn more about the use of weighted vests, uh, you should go do some research on this because <laughs> I'm interested to hear what kind of things you turn up. There's a, there's a world of research out there to look at, and most of it's not particularly kind to that idea. <laughs> also, we've included some links in our show notes. You can uh, check out some of the sources that we used. I didn't include all of them because I was... I was I, I I apologize to say it this way, but I was like, I would move, I'd go through an article, I'd read it and I'd, I would look at their sources. I'd go to something that they had cited and read it. And I went through so many that I was just not even thinking about um, copying and pasting all the ones that I used. So there's only a few of them in here and I hope that that's still useful to you. But otherwise, uh, thank you so much for listening. Please reach out to us if you have anything to comment on this episode. Um, anything if you have, especially if you are polite and respectful in your communication, uh, even if you disagree, they were perfectly happy to receive those emails. Um, and of course if you uh, agree we're happy to receive those emails as well so uh, we liked we like when people say kind things and we're perfectly happy to address concerns when we get something wrong we've done corrections on here before so yep absolutely so we love feedback so please give it to us perfect all right well i think that that is it then thank you so much and uh go check us out on all of our platforms join us on patreon that sort of thing uh this is abraham and this is shane we're out see ya listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. And, and so um, I'm, I need to just just a real quick sidebar. My eyesight is so bad that as I'm reading the notes, I read this as uh, vest with no weight, parentheses, which served as a poncho. I read that. So I. <laughs> served as a poncho. It would. It would effectively I serve guess it as could a be. poncho. <laughs> they, they, they did an empirical study on a poncho. So I apologize that that's the first thing I, I read.